So Genesis chapter 4, looking at Cain and Abel today, it's a quite a compelling, very, very graphic, scary passage. Uh, but just picking up from where Sam left off last week, there's a lot of similar themes in the Cain and, uh, the Cain and Abel story that we find in the Eden story as well. If you remember from last week, Sam's, one of Sam's major points, which, were, which was uh, throughout his entire sermon, was that of trusting God. What does it mean to trust God? And as soon as the serpent, Satan, comes into the equation, then the trust between Eve and Adam, and Adam and Eve and God, start to, get, start to find itself, or finds itself on shaky grounds. And it's a, it's a similar thing we're going to be looking at again today. And just in my research of, uh, of uh, Cain and Abel, and I was, I was reading a few different things, I happened to uh, uh, listen to Timothy Keller. He does a, a, a very brilliant sermon on it uh, back in the late 90s. And uh, as I was listening to it, he, he describes Genesis as almost being a parallel to our genetics. So he makes the point that our genetics, in a, in a sense, they, they shape how our lives play out. You have certain genetic, genetic makeup, and then over the course of your life, certain genes are going to be uh, uh, prompted, and that, it's going to be expressed in certain ways. But in, in a very similar way, we have Genesis, which is the genetic code of the rest of the Bible. Did you, in, in some sense, the gen- genetic code of, of e- even mankind, history. And the themes we see here in uh, Cain and Abel are, are so essential to understanding the rest of the Bible that I, I feel like you can't just look over it quickly. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot of meaning. But let's have a quick read. We're going to be going to Genesis 4 from verse 1 to 16. And we'll see what we can pull out of it. Starting in verse 1, it says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soils. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborns of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the grounds. Now you are under a curse and driven from the grounds, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's brother's blood from your hands. Then when you work the grounds, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the lands and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We have a, a quick prayer, and then we can unpack exactly uh, what there is to find in this, this awesome passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I think so much we can come into your presence, Lord. Uh, like, like, 
Ben and Lisa were sharing, Lord, that you've made a way for us to be connected, Lord, uh, and that's through your son, Jesus. And I think so much that you, you take our sins upon yourself, Lord, and bear it on our behalf, and that we can have our intimate relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, as we look through this passage, we can take your words to heart, Lord. Let it, let it creep into our, our heart, our soul, even our minds, Lord, and so that we can take it throughout uh, our everyday experiences, Lord, as we go throughout our week. I pray, Lord, your spirit can be working on us, Lord, opening our hearts up to what you have to say to us and that we may be convicted. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So I have three points here, three quick points, relatively quick points uh, that we, we can look at. And the first one I have here is that the signs of sin are very subtle. If you notice here, Cain does not just suddenly murder his brother out of nowhere. It's not a, a massive plot twist. You can see it building up bit by bit, and especially God. God gives them, like, divine counsel. Hey, Cain, why are you angry? Clearly, there are some signs that this major sin is about to take place. Clearly, there's something we can pay attention to and apply to our own lives as well. And the second point I have here is, are we impulsive beasts or are we image bearers? It's a huge theme throughout this passage. Which one are we going to choose? Who are we going to trust about our own identity? And the third one I have here is, are we going to present an offering of faith, like Abel, or an offering of fear? And as Elisa was pointing out earlier, fear and faith are in contrast to one another. They can't coexist. So looking at the first point here, <laughs> the signs of sin are subtle. And as I was reading through this uh, passage, definitely one of the words that stuck out to me immediately is in verse 6, where God describes or warns Cain that sin is crouching at your door. And I was reading up on this, and, and I found that crouching, or the Hebrew word for crouching, almost always has connotations with a lion or a leopard, some kind of wild animal, which is, if you think back to Eden, the Garden of Eden, then we have sin introduced by an animal, and here we have another kind of, I want to say personification, maybe animalification of sin in some sense. Sin is being kind of built up to have a, a body and mind of itself. It's not just passive. And what I, what I find really interesting about this is that it's, it's a very distinct warning sign for us to follow. And if you're like me, following signs, probably not your strong suits. I remember I was, uh, I was actually in New Zealand a couple of years ago, and I, was, I went fishing with my dad. It's the first time we'd been back for a long time. And my, my dad wanted to show me a, a childhood fishing spot. And we're walking down to the spot... Uh, it's this long, very like overgrown trail, and there's a whole bunch of signs. Do I pay any attention to the signs? Of course not. Okay, I want to go fishing. But as I began approaching the beach, suddenly there weren't signs anymore, but there were crosses. And suddenly my 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 mind started to to pack up. Like, oh gosh, something is it must have been really important on those signs. And of course, when we reach the beach, we find that to, in order to go to the fishing spot, we have to climb down a near vertical uh, cliff. Which, and if you're able-bodied and, you, and you're athletic, and yeah, go, go ahead. But my dad, who was you know, 55 and has knee and hip problems, almost gave me a heart attack in itself. But my point being is that the signs leading up to that beach were more than likely expressing concern or, or a warning that, you know, there's danger at the destination. There is danger but sometimes we don't attribute the, the correct amount of seriousness to signs when we ought to. And this is a great example here with Cain as well. 
So like I said earlier, we have this, this word of, of this word crouching. And we, we learn a few characteristics when we start to think of sin as being characterized as an animal. We learn that sin, first of all, is active, it's motivated, and that it's not very far off, it's close to us. Always at the doorstep, ready to creep in if we so allow it. And we, when we start to think of sin in that fashion, that it is active, it desires to have you, Cain, then it needs an active, or more or less proactive, response in order to prevent it as well. And so the challenge, so the challenge with our viewpoint of sin is that we don't always take it as seriously as we ought to. And the reason I think this is, is because crouching, when you think of an animal, when an animal crouches or is on the prowl for, for prey, it's designed to make itself look smaller. An animal, will, if you've ever, ever had a cat, ever been on safari, I don't know, if ever had a chance to go to the zoo, you may notice a lion or a leopard or your, your kitten. It, it, it stalks, it brings itself low to the ground. I think the writer here in Genesis is using that image to help us realize that sin has a way of seeming a lot smaller than it actually is. And the signs were present for Cain, right? Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now, does Cain uh, adhere to those warnings? No. Because in Cain's mind, he doesn't see a connection between his feelings right now, the warning signs, which God sees very clearly, and what he will eventually do to his brother. So we have to be willing to look at those, uh, look at those uh, 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 warning signs. And honestly, how do we see sin? How do we see the signs that lead, leading up to sin? Sin wants us to see it as a kitten. Lovable, small, not a threat to us at all. We have to understand the reality is radically, radically different. And there's uh, many, many different ways that we can have warning signs which we can look at and realize it's going to lead to sin. I think for most of us, it's probably like, I don't know, maybe fantasizing. Maybe thinking about, oh gosh, I really wish I had that job. A dis discontentment with your current circumstances. Now, anyone sitting down and, and thinking and dwelling on a thought for a few moments, it's probably not going to, I don't know, spark a warning sign or an urgency to, to react. But we have to understand that in itself is a threat to us. It does, it, it, is, a, it is a sign that the destination is not going to be very good for us. I think especially as well when it comes to like sexual fantasies. When you think about how sexual fantasy impacts our relationships, and there's no way that you, can, you think you're going to be okay if you, if you fantasize about, about, about a certain girl or a certain guy, and then you think you're going to interact, interact with them, behave in, in, a, in an honorable way with them. You're going to perceive them as someone who has God's image. It's just not going to happen. But we have to understand sin starts with the small things. It may look like a kitten, but in reality, it's definitely a lion. And I think, I think the, the world goes about this in a few different ways. Uh, the world will say, well, sin, in some sense, oh, sorry, sorry, the world will redefine sin to make it seem less scary than it actually is. I was, uh, I was watching a, a news story by, uh, I think, Ben Shapiro, and he, he was making reference to California, uh, which, now incentivizing people to come in to have abortions. Now, now paying for, for the procedures, paying for the accommodation in order to, to bring people in. And that's like the hallmark of like progressive uh, uh, virtue. 
And in, in some sense, it, it, from the world's point of view, it, it seems good. But it diminishes, it twists in to make it look more like a kitten and less like the lion it actually is. I think we have to realize sin is always a lot more prevalent than we actually probably give it a credit for. So how do we avoid ending up like Cain, with sin crouching out of doorsteps, ready to consume us, and then giving into it? Well, I think the first thing we need to do oops, is that we need some fellowship. We need relationships. And Cain has, obviously, relationships that always work very effectively in deterring us away from pursuing sin because Cain has a one-on-one chat with God. It's kind of sobering thinking, well, not even God can talk Cain away from the cliff he's, he's kind of looking down on. Not even God is able to convince Cain to actually do the right thing. But we do need relationships. I think the person who says, I don't need relationships in my spiritual walk, really is playing with fire. I mean, if you think your pride is going to stay in check via your own ability to, to keep an eye on it, absolutely not. There's no way. And when we all have our strongest, our strongest bias, if not towards our kids, it's probably going to be towards ourselves. We always have that, that inkling to your, the ability to look at ourselves in the best possible light. And that's why we need relationships. And the picture I have up here is of, uh, of the uh, campus ministry. And, and pros ministry. We went on a camping trip not too long ago, and Adelaide came over. I think the whole point of that, of that camp was to form relationships for this purpose. To have people around one another who could push each other along spiritually, to challenge one another. And really, do you have that type of relationship with somebody? Do you have that relationship where someone will speak truth into your life? And when someone does speak truth into your life, how do you respond? Are you someone who responds aggressively, defensively? Or are you someone who's willing to look into their lives and accept, heed the advice being given to you? And it's something we need to always have at the forefront of our lives, of our minds, sorry, or we're going to end up getting consumed by sin. And so my second point I have here is, uh, are we, sorry, my second point I have here is, are we, gosh, I skipped it, impulsive beasts or image bearers? And if you're familiar with the Bible, and this is a cool thing about Genesis, is it, it touches on a theme which comes throughout the entire Bible. And uh, I was reading Romans not long ago, and, and you have this, in Romans 7, you have this, uh, this internal battle uh, within Paul, where say, he's, on one side you have the flesh, and the other side you have, I guess in some sense, the spirits. And you have this really intense battle. It's, it's, Paul's like crying out. It's, it's too hard. It's challenging. Uh, it's, it pushes him to the, uh, the utter brink in some sense. And we also have, um, when I think, I was also thinking of uh, Proverbs 7. And Proverbs 7, if you're familiar with that, is an is a insight into a man or a warning for a man not to be led astray by the adulterous woman. And in that particular passage, it describes him as... as uh, is like an ox being led to the slaughter. And I, I think the, cool, the, the really cool thing about Genesis and the story here in Cain is that it's warning us that we are to subscribe to our God-given image. And there's two important things we need to remember for our God-given image. The first one is that it gives us higher reasoning skills. That's the whole idea of us being separate from animals. And the second one is that it gives us an inherent value. A value in who we are, who we're created to be, and not just in what we do. 
And like I was saying earlier, with the higher reasoning skills, oops, it's, it, it comes in contrast to an animalistic instinct. Cain feels stuff. He has emotions. He feels hatred. And so therefore he acts. And that's a, a telltale when it comes to sin. We feel stuff and therefore we act. We, we just respond to it. The reality is that God has designed us to actually have a, a critical mindset uh, as part of our God-given image. And that's why God speaks to him. That's why God is asking him questions. Cain, why are you angry? Cain, why is your face downcast? I think in, to some extent, God is actually appealing to Cain, remember who you actually are, Cain. Step back from the emotions. Step back from all, all the things happening around you and what you may be feeling and actually examine your heart and see, see it for what it actually is. Be sober-minded about it. And uh, there's this, uh, this great uh, quote uh, from David Foreman, who, who does like a commentary on, uh, on Cain and Abel, uh, which says, God may have told you not to eat from the tree, but do you want to? If so, you are faced with a contradiction. Which divine voice will you listen to? God's spoken words or the voice of God that beats instinct instinctively inside you? The voice of instinct, passion, and desire. Speaking for myself, the snake argues, it is not much of a, it's not much of a contest. For an animal, the voice of desire always reigns supreme. And this is what I mean when earlier I said that it comes to a, I mean, the story of Cain and Abel is a story of trust, ultimately, just like it is in terms of Eden, too. The snake poisons Eve's mind. You can't really trust God. You can't really trust what he's saying. In the same way, we have a, a dilemma for Cain. Is he going to trust who God says he is? Or is he going to trust who he believes he is, who he desires to be? That is an animal, animalistic murderer. And we've got to think, when we're, we're in that midst of sin, which, which desire, which voice do you listen to? Do you listen to God's voice? His words when it gets tough? When emotions start swirling? Or do you, do you just fall into, into instinct and desire and passion? Do you just react? We have to learn to embrace the image of God. And then what I have here as well is that, that when, we, when we talk about our image of God, we, under, we have to understand that we have an inherent value to us. We are made in the, the image of our creator, our designer. And that, that is not something to be glossed over. It means we have intrinsic value, something which people can't take away and which we can't even take away from ourselves. And so often in our, in our modern world, one of the most common problems is depression. There's a sense that I do not have uh, anything to contribute to society or my worth in and in of itself is not good enough. But what the Bible says is that man and woman, we are all made in God's image. We all have intrinsic value. And you have, you have two people in these passages, or one person and one being, in, the, in this passage of Cain and Abel that remembers the importance of value in, in, in the image of God and one who forgets it. Of course, Cain forgets it almost immediately. Uh, consider what, what kind of like mental gymnastics you need to be doing in order to go out and, and kill your brother to, just, to justify that. 
Yes, Kane is feeling a lot. Yes, he's, he's extremely upset. But there's a point there where Cain has to remove the image of God away from Abel and he has to perceive him in a different way. He has to dehumanize Abel. In that sense, he ends up slaughtering Abel like an animal. That's what allows that whole thing to happen. And ever since Cain has done it, it's been a huge part of our society ever since. Uh, There's a quote here uh, which says, when people dehumanize others, they actually conceive of them as subhuman creatures. Uh, and, and so then only in, in that moment can we uh, liberate aggression and exclude the target of aggression from the moral community. And that simply means the moral laws that we apply to ourselves and the people we love suddenly no longer apply to that particular person. I mean, the Nazis referred to the Jews as, as rats, dehumanized this group of people. And that allows them to do unspeakable evil. Cain takes the image of God away from Abel and allows, it, allows him to murder him. And I guess the question I have for everyone here today is that, I mean, is there anyone in your life you are stripping of the image of God? You're not treating them with the type of respect and love that you ought to be doing. And uh, there's obviously many different people where you feel like it is justified. But really, it's, it's not justified to treat anyone below the image of God. If I told you that Hitler is made in the image of God, you may feel a strong response. But we don't have any problem when we apply that to ourselves. We were made in the image of God. Yes, amen. Preach it. But how about the people close to you? How about the person who maybe decades or years ago hurt you severely? Do you see them as being made in the image of God? Or do you see them as subhuman? Someone who needs to be destroyed. And but the, the, the beauty of this passage is it's not just Cain forgetting his, the, the image of God, it's also God remembering us. Because think about how God treats Cain. Well, first of all, think how you would have treated Cain. I, mean, I know personally my attitude with Cain would be like, dude, get out of here. I give you some discipleship, I give you advice, and look, you go and murder your brother, that's not what I told you to do. Gosh, no. And honestly, I I feel like my instinct would be to uh, to jump, condemn, and exclude him. And to be clear, God does give out justice. He doesn't hold back justice. There is a sense of he gets what he deserves. But there's a lot of of interesting things in here that show that God isn't just one of justice, but justice, but also someone of compassion and love. I mean, think about in verse uh, uh, 13 and 14 where Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. That's like the ultimate woe to me statements. Gosh, spare thought for Abel maybe. I mean, even now Cain is so focused on himself that he can't even possibly even consider anything beyond it. And so he, not a great character right now, but consider God's response. But the Lord said to him, not so, and when he kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. It's an important sentence, because God did not have to do that. He just said, you know what, I and I go out, you get what you deserve. Yes, you're going to be killed, and you deserve it. No. God gives him a seal of protection. 
And I think even when in, in the initial stages where Cain is feeling this, this, uh, this cyclone of, of negative emotions and, and God approaches and speaks to him, the, the very fact that God is actually asking questions to Cain suggests that there's still hope in God's mind for Cain. There is still hope for him to be redeemed. And Derek Kidner says uh, about this particular section that God's concern for justice, for the innocent, is matched only by one other thing, his care for the sinner. I think that's a beautiful silver lining of this passage, is that Cain is not rejected for the offering. The, the offering is rejected, but it's not until Cain succumbs to the, the sin crouching at his door that he eventually gets uh, 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 exiled away and separated from God. God is willing to, to maintain that relationship for as long as possible. And I think that's awesome because Cain is not a repentant type of character. It doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, the passage doesn't suggest even an inkling of remorse from Cain at all. Not repentant at all. But this is how God still treats him. He treats him with mercy, love, and kindness. And so if that's how God treats the unrepentant person, how much more so would he treat the repentant person? How much more so can we, in our lives, look upon our flaws and our sins and be able to come to God and beg for mercy, and how much more are we going to receive it? Because that's the type of God he is. And the final point I have here is, uh, is uh, we need to learn to give our offering of faith and not one of fear. And this is like the big question of the passage, right? Cain's offering gets rejected. Abel's gets accepted. Why? Why, why is that a thing? Why, why, why does God reject Cain's offering? When in reality, God has not even mandated offerings needed, need to be given yet. Which is a pretty remarkable thing. These guys are coming to, to God on their own uh, um, on their own will, like uh, essentially they're, they're up in front of the eight ball in terms of giving offerings. And it's, it's pretty hard to see. We have to go to Hebrews chapter 11 to how to figure it out, okay? And so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. And so the main factor between the two offerings is faith. Abel gives his offering believing in the promises of God, and Cain has a very different reason for why he gives his, and we'll look at that in a moment. But focusing on Abel's, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting the wording we have here about his offering. It says that the offering Abel gave was the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. I think that's pretty significant. Because if you have a flock and you're giving out your firstborn, then there's no guarantee that you're going to get any more calves. There's no guarantee that your, your flock is going to continue. The firstborn, is like the, the firstborn offering is like the ultimate way of saying, you know what, God, I'm going to trust you with my future. I don't have it under control. In fact, I've just given over control to you. And it's, it's Abel's way of saying, you know what? I have faith in God. I do not have faith in myself. 
And I also think the fact that I think the, what, the reason Abel's able to have that much faith is because he trusts, he, he trusts in the promises that have already been given by God. Now, if we remember back to uh, Sam's sermon on the Garden of Eden, God says a lot of different things, but the one really stands out about Eve's offspring. If you remember correctly, God talks about how the serpent will strike his heel and he will crush the serpent's head. And I, I, I tend to believe that Abel is aware of this. He's aware that whatever was introduced into the Garden of Eden was not good and it has produced death. But God has promised that one day that death is going to be conquered. Now, one of the offspring, in however number of years, Abel doesn't know, but he does know that God has made that promise. I think because Abel's able to trust in that promise by God, he's able to act with a high degree of faith in what he offers. And we have to learn to trust the promises that God makes. But then we have the contrast which is, uh, which is Cain, who does not make a, a faithful offering. He makes one which is based on fear. I think out of Cain and Abel, my tendency is to make an offering based on fear. And it's not immediately obvious in the passage why Cain's offering gets rejected. We don't have a lot to go off. All we know is that he gave some, some vegetables and some fruits, and it wasn't, wasn't quite adequate. But... I, I do think there's a lot for us to learn based on his reaction to his offering being rejected. And think about it. His reaction to his offering being rejected is so severe, so strong, that it's actually an indicator about where he finds his value in, where he finds his self-worth in. Because Cain is not going to God to give an offering based on the grace that he's received, not based on faith, it's, it's a way for him to leverage something from God. And I think the Cain, the Cain offerings actually contextually, is a, it's really important to understand that the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. And Cain, I mean, sorry, Sam, Sam has spoken about this in the past, about how Israel has, has been in Egypt for such a large period of time that their understanding of, of, of theology, their understanding of how God operates, has most likely been shaped by the Egyptian worldview. I mean, they have a polytheistic uh, mindset. Every, every aspect of nature, every aspect of even ourselves, has a God connected to it. If you want it to rain, if you want a harvest, if you want fertility, then you need to offer an offering to that specific God. But that's, that's not how our God works. God is not, God is not this, this cookie jar which we can go and, uh, and demand things from. But I think that's how Cain uh, perceives him. And ironically, I think that's why Cain's... I mean, there's a lot of reasons why Cain's name means acquire. But I think that's the ironic meaning of his name, is that he goes to God in order to acquire something. He is living out the ironic meaning of his name. I think we need to. Um, I think we need to keep in mind that, uh, sorry, that when Cain is when Cain is approaching God in such a way that he's living out the animalistic impulse that let me to 
get, what can I take, what can I take, is not living out a, 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 a life which is based on his image, one of faith. And so just to finish up, uh, I have, oops. ultimately, if we want to have faith like Abel, if we want to have that, that, that faith which says, I trust in you fully, God, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to find my security in your promises and my identity and who you say I am, if we want that type of faith, we, we can't just look to Abel as an example, but we need to be willing to look to Abel or look to the person Abel is looking to. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Abel is, is in tune with the promises of God. He recognizes that one day there's going to be an a offspring from Eve who's going to crush the serpent's head. And I think, obviously, that's a reference to Jesus. And it's so cool when the Bible just lines up nicely. It just all works together well. And uh, Colossians 1.15 says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It's kind of interesting. We get, we get Abel making an offering to God of his firstborn, and that's a demonstration of faith. But why does he do it? Because he knows one day God is going to make an offering of his firstborn. So so Abel's understanding of God's faithfulness motivates and inspires his own faith in God. I think if we want to have a robust, resilient faith in who God is, then we need to be looking towards the cross. We always need to be looking at it because that's ultimately where we find our security and our purpose. And there's one more comparison I want to make here with uh, Cain and Abel's story and, of course, uh, uh, the New Testament. And that's in Hebrews 12. You get these parallel phrases again, and it's, it's quite an interesting phrase where God says to Cain, your brother's blood is going to be crying out to me from the grounds. Very confusing statement, right? But we have, we have this, this passage in Hebrews 12, which provides a little bit more insight and context to what that means. So Hebrews 12, verse 22, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to all the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's powerful, powerful language. The sacrifice, the murder of Abel, in some ways, is meant to be a foreshadowing of that of Christ. But whilst Abel's blood cries out for vengeance from the ground, it demands retribution, demands justice. That's not what Jesus' blood cries out for. The blood of Jesus instead cries out for grace, cries out for mercy, forbearance, peace. And I think that's, that's the beautiful message of the gospel is that we have a saviour. We have someone who has taken the burden of our sin, but he doesn't seek retribution against us for it. Now, this was actually part of the larger plan. This is part of, of the, the larger narrative which began in, began in Genesis, but has continued on for all of history. And so, yeah, Jesus' blood cries out for grace and mercy, and because of that, we can be justified and made righteous in the eyes of God. And we can find that identity 
in Jesus. We no longer have to strive and work and, and look for the perfect offering, just like Cain. We don't have to try to leverage something away from, from God. We don't have to try and earn it for ourselves. We can't merit our own righteousness. But the story of Cain and Abel ultimately is to trust the story. Not just the chapter of Genesis 4, but trust the larger narrative of God. The gospel message which says that Christ has come to save us all. So just to summarize, oh, I've skipped it. The signs of sin are subtle. Now, what do you have happening in your life right now which you've kind of shifted to the side? What have you kind of neglected? What do you fantasize about? What do you let linger on your mind a little bit too long, which ultimately is going to lead to sin? Don't be like me, walking past the different signs on the way to the beach, only to find out at the very end that, you know what, there's a lot of danger. I mean, God has put up a lot of warning signs. And it's also put people in your life as well to give you a, a sense of uh, 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 input and uh, assistance that you need in order to see your pride properly. And then, are we impulsive beasts, people of instinct, desire, and passion? Or are we ones of, of uh, are we people who, who, who represent the image that we've been given to bear? Do we have that higher order reasoning? Do we see ourselves as having innate, inherent value? Do we see one another of having that value as well? And does that come across in our relationships? And finally, are we giving an offering of faith? Or, or that of fear? Are we trying to merit and get stuff from God? Or are we trying to, uh, or essentially, are we surrendering and saying, you know what, God, I'm going to give you offerings because of the grace that you bestowed us. Amen? Uh, let's have a quick prayer, then we can have a, a final song. Uh, Heavenly Father, yeah, I think so much, Lord, that you've made a way when there was no way. And you, you took on all our sins, Lord. The retribution that we, we deserve, Lord, uh, for, for the... For all the, the transgressions were made against you, Lord, you instead of responding with wrath and judgment and condemnation, Lord, you made a way that we could experience the grace and mercy. And I, pr- I think so much that we can come into a union with you, Lord, uh, and be connected. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that we can have faith like Abel, a faith which is rooted in the promises that you've made and the promises that we've seen come into fruition, Lord, uh, namely that of your son. And I pray, Lord, as we uh, go about... Uh, the remainder of our, of our day, Lord, we can reflect and, and dwell on your word and let it infiltrate every area of our life. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.